Oddities, Late Night Movies with Rob and Zach. This is a podcast about cinematic oddities, where we discuss any media that is too bizarre, abnormal, or off-kilter for contemporary audiences. Occasionally, these projects gel. Most times, they crash hard into the realm of obscurity. Join us as we delve into the cult classics Swamp. I'm Zach. And did you have some sort of lezzy wet dream about me? Oh my god. Oh my god, you did! You fantasized about me! Was I good? Funniest line in the movie, as far as I'm concerned. This week on oh, yeah. Cin- <laughs> this week on Cinemodities, we are continuing along with our June series of Chewed Up and Spit Out. But before we talk about how this film fits into that category, we have a very special guest. And as always, when we have our guests, they're pulling our legs. He is not Zach. He is actually. LaShawn, someone I've wanted on this podcast for a long, long time, and it's finally happening. LaShawn, thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you for having me. It's been a long time that, uh, you know, I should have accepted this invitation, but we both have lives, and with all the stuff going on in the world, and COVIDs, and Coronas, and all sorts of stuff, you know, life kind of happens, but I'm very glad to be here, Rob. Yes, yes. So, So not only... Uh, did I want to get LaShawn on this podcast and actually chose Black Swan for this series because I knew it would get him intrigued. But he also has a very successful YouTube platform that is completely unrelated to the topic of cinematic oddities. So I wanted to give you a chance because I'm a big fan of your YouTube channel. I'm also a guest star on a very old episode of your YouTube channel out here in Colorado. Can you enlighten us as to where people can hear you more talking about non-movie things? So, as Rob, you know, kind of preempted, I basically film cars. And I know a lot of people are like, what do you mean when you film cars? You know, like, what do you do to them? And, uh, you know, it's always weird to explain that I just love cars, you know? Like, I just want to be sitting in them, laying on them, filming with them, talking to them. It's not weird stuff, but... You could find me on YouTube. Uh, I go by LJ sometimes, and uh, the channel's LJ's Garage, and you can definitely find Rob on that channel because he's a was a great co-host in one of my favorite little. How do you say you know? Uh, what do I, how how's the best way to put it? I don't know. Maybe one of my unorthodox. Like a, episodes. Yeah, <laughs> maybe like a bonus episode. What was it called? Like why do Colorado? Why does Colorado love Subaru so much, or something like that? And that one was just kind of pulled out of, you know, my butt because I was like, you know, we need to talk about why, you know, Colorado people, drivers tend to like Subarus. And it turned out to be a real thing, like statistically backed. (laughs) Yes, yes. If you want to hear Rob uh, doing a Steve Irwin type accent about other Subarus on the road, that happens in that video. (laughs) So, yes, I will certainly put um, in the show notes of this episode a link to uh, LJ's Garage, LaShawn's YouTube channel, and I recommend everybody check it out because it is some, something completely different from what we do here in Cinemodities, and it's, it's really interesting. It's, uh, as I said to LaShawn before we started to record, it's a different language than Rob speaks, and he really appreciates that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so not only... Did Rob want to get LaShawn on here because he has a very successful YouTube channel? It's also because when LaShawn and I met in late 2010 in college, we became fast friends watching movies and TV shows and making fun of them, I think, is is the best way to put it. 
Um, we watched sure. a lot of stuff. We introduced each other to a lot of stuff. I, I made a quick list that I was thinking of. Um, LaShawn introduced <laughs> me to the monstrosity known as Weeds, which I now consider yes. one of the worst things ever. <laughs> um, I introduced LaShawn to the gloriousness of Lost. Yes. LaShawn yeah. has the fantastic distinction of being the first person ever to introduce Rob to Adventure Time, which, as this podcast knows, Rob considers the greatest piece of media in history. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, Finn I, and Jake. I, I was trying to think of some other things. Um, oh, of course, um, LaShawn was there for the first time I ever saw Oddsack, the Animal Collective <laughs> visual album, which we've done an episode on this podcast of, and I still watch, I think, every few weeks because I love it so much. <laughs> Uh, what, and there was a, a few other things, I think, that, you know, um, in, instead of TV shows, do you remember, because it only came back to me when I was kind of probing my brain for this episode, we watched something on Netflix that was called, like, My Life as a Sex Addict, or I Am a Sex Addict? Do, oh, you, re- do you remember I this? I remember that vaguely, but and I remember, yeah. We, we laughed hysterically at, like, this dude shows up late to lunch with somebody and the other person's like, why are you late? And he just very nonchalantly says, oh, I had a masturbatory episode. <laughs> masturbatory episode. That's the we only thing I remember. Everything. Yes, we started, that became our go-to excuse. <laughs> yeah. Why are you late for class? Well, sir, <laughs> professor, I had a masturbatory episode. <laughs> All over. <laughs> Everywhere. <laughs> hey, I've been waiting. I know, I'm sorry. I had a little masturbatory episode. <laughs> so, so yes, uh, we we um, hung out a lot. Even though we never lived together, we spent a lot of time, LaShawn telling me every day to watch The Wire, which I only did a few months ago, finally. <laughs> it only took me ten years from LaShawn telling me to watch The Wire that I did, and it was great, by the way. Um, we watched stuff all the time we just shot the shit it was great and he is definitely someone who knows how to talk about movies and when we were getting to this series of chewed up and spit out and i wanted to pick a movie i was really tempted to pick secretary and then i was like oh no black swan like i remember Lashawn loving that movie even Ooh-ooh. further i was like i remember Lashawn and i watching that movie together I don't think we ever did, though, now that I've watched Black Swan twice in preparation for this recording. I was confusing, I'm pretty sure, LaShawn, maybe you can correct me, I'm pretty sure that we watched the movie Chloe with Amanda Seyfried and Julianne Moore, which also has a girl-on-girl action scene, (laughs) but for some reason I thought we had watched Black Swan. Did we watch Black Swan? Did we not? Do you remember? So... It was definitely Chloe. We didn't watch Black Swan together, but we talked about Black Swan. And you had a laundry list of things that you had to watch. And so you never got around to it. But I think one night I was watching Chloe and you'd come in and we were just like, fine, we'll just watch Chloe. Yeah. And uh, because I was all super weird and I like to watch like the adult content that's going to be in the movie so I can kind of prepare for the scenes that I'm going to see. And so uh, I knew there was some weird, you know, woman stuff going on, woman on woman. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So so that, for some reason, I had, like, the Mandela effect where, for years, I would say, like, the last six or seven years, I thought I had seen Black Swan. And when I watched it to, like, choose it for this series, I was like, I don't remember any of this. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, yes, we did watch Chloe. Um, I remember, I think we both, either we both had an affinity or we were torn about how weird, good, but weird Amanda Seyfried looks. Like, that's just her shtick, that she's just a weird-looking, wide-eyed person. (laughs) She's unique. It's kind of like a fish-eyed look, but it's also like she's beautiful, but like not conventionally pretty, but just her proportions aren't quite right. But overall, great. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Maybe I maybe we'll have to get to Chloe because since I thought for so long that Chloe was Black Swan, I don't remember much of Chloe now. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also like Mariska Hargaday, you know? She just she's just cool. Like in Law and Order, she just she oh, just sure. does something for me and she's just I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I I guess we should say that's a, another good point to make. Uh many people that we have on this podcast, uh hosts Zach included, they're not big fans. I'm the Law and Order person. LaShawn is actually someone who also appreciates the Law and Order, so I give him props okay. for that. <laughs> <laughs> so, speaking of Zach, before we get into these things, uh, we have to talk about, well, once again, Zach is not here. What is he up to? And not only do we get to discuss why Zach is not here, we get to drop some information I think LaShawn might not be privy to. LaShawn, are you aware that this podcast is not only a movie, TV show, music video, media review show, it's actually a way that Zach and I can discuss things to further the restaurant that we own and operate. Are you familiar with this? Not at all. Oh, right. I love (laughs) dropping this on people. So... Zach and I are the, the 50-50 owners and operators of the Cinemodities restaurant. It is in the, it, it's in, it's in, it's located, I should say, in Times Square, New York City, Manhattan, uh, where Mars 2112 used to be, so it's underground. It is an infinite nice. void of space, so infinite <laughs> that some people cannot find their way out, and we have our own little population, and it's totally real. That's all you need to know about it right now. <laughs> Sold. No questions. (laughs) Perfect. So, whenever Zach is not here, it's because he is is off at the restaurant working on some things. And the last few weeks, he's been trying to further the restaurant, uh, just to give our audience and LaShawn some some notion of what's happening. Uh, We've been in talks for maybe this whole year. We're trying to make our restaurant mobile and also give it the ability to consume other restaurants to gain their power. We're still working on that. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, but this week, he is actually doing some damage control. Because one of the meals that we offer on our rex- restaurant menu is eggs mixed with paint. And even though we give the customer the choice of lead-based or acrylic-based paint, there's some anger because children don't seem to know the difference. We do have a kids portion of the restaurant. It is the Sin E Modities portion of the restaurant. Think Chuck E. Cheese, <laughs> but Sin E Modities. Apparently, a lot of these kids are ordering scrambled eggs mixed with lead-based paint, and their parents are not happy about this. Even though one of the mottos of the restaurant, which is in big letters a lot of, around almost the entire Infinite Void, is no liability. So even though we have no liability for what our customers eat... Uh, some people are getting angry about this, and Zach is off dealing with that anger. So he's doing a little damage control. 
When we talk about, now that LaShawn is aware of this restaurant, when we talk about our snacks at the end of this episode, this is actually what we're going to be doing, LaShawn. We're going to be taking things that are inspired by Black Swan and adding them to our restaurant. So I don't know if that changes your frame of the snacks at the end of this episode, but that's exactly why we do snacks at the end of every episode. Any questions about the restaurant? I do have one question, and it's... You know, so in Bob's Burgers, you know how Bob has a burger of the day? Do you guys have anything like that on your menu, like a liability burger? <laughs> I, I'm not creative, that's all. <laughs> I like, that's a good idea. We don't, we do have some special events, things that don't happen all the time, but we don't really have anything daily. Um, so the things that come to mind are every Sunday night, we ask people to gather for what we call seance modities where we hold a seance in the restaurant to contact dead people and ask them things. Um, and, and, and yes, this did come around in the age of quarantine, because as you might know, you have to hold hands and be close together to perform a seance, and we wanted to make sure our customers were as close as possible during quarantine. And we also never shut down during quarantine. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, as the show on Discovery Channel goes or whatever, I'm definitely naked and afraid right now. (laughs) Naked and afraid, perfect. (laughs) So that is where Zach is, hard at work at the restaurant. Um, With that being said, we can jump into a little more discussion, I think, for LaShawn and especially for our audience. This is the second episode of our June series, which is known as Chewed Up and Spit Out. And you might ask yourselves, well, after you did last week's episode, the first in this series, Under the Silver Lake, and uh, it was Rob, Ben, and Justin having a totally incoherent, tangential discussion for three hours about an incredibly dense mystery movie, we're finally getting into the films that actually get at this idea. When we say chewed up and spit out, we are talking about the plight of women in show business not only by the people around them, but also their intrinsic desire to succeed. And since today we are talking about Black Swan, this movie really fits that bill. Not only are we going to be talking about Natalie Portman's intrinsic desire to be perfect in her role as the Swan Queen, we also have great, you know, Vincent Cassell, the head of the dance company, pushing her to be someone that she's not and someone that she doesn't want to be. So, so that's really kind of going to be the crux of this discussion. Of course, we'll talk about this movie in great detail, LaShawn, but the reason for choosing this is because it really has that, that women-in-the-industry vibe. I think that's a major theme of this movie, not only Natalie Portman, but Mila Kunis and uh, Lydia Dietz, Winona Ryder, is in this movie. Would you agree with that assessment that this is a, a, a woman's show business kind of arc type of movie? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And you touched on a couple good things, just how, you know, kind of how a woman has to fight to get to that successful point in her career or, you know, struggle to make the man happy in order to get the permission to be successful. And that's kind of a something they touch on a lot, as well as um, one thing that I don't know if you had realized, it was the whole women versus women Mm-hmm. In order to like that whole cutthroat, you know, competition thing where it gets to the point where it's no longer, you know, friendly competition. It's now like super cutthroat. And that kind of gets touched on a little bit with uh, Mila popping up. And instead of being her guidance, she kind of just tries to steal her role completely. Oh, oh, yeah. that That's a that's a great point. Yeah, we're we're going to get into 
there's so much in this movie. Last week's movie, <laughs> if, if you listen to our episode on Under the Silver Lake, we started by saying this is dense and it was a crazy conversation. This movie is dense in a completely different way, and it's, it's, it's very interesting. So before we Agreed. get into it, some history, um, because I always like to talk about this. This movie was released in the U.S. on December 3rd, 2010. So long ago. I would have guessed this movie was a little later than 2010, but it happened. It had a budget of $13 million, which is not that big in terms of Hollywood, and it grossed worldwide in its theatrical run $330 million. This movie made bank, and I think the word of mouth on this movie was fantastic. That's the only way I knew about it. I don't think I've ever seen a trailer. I just had other people telling me about this movie. And whether or not it was because it was a great psychological thriller or you get to see Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis, like, going down on each other, who knows? But <laughs> this movie had legs. Like, this movie made a bunch of money. And not only did it make a bunch of money, it's the fifth film from Darren Aronofsky. I haven't seen all of his movies, but I've seen Pi, and that's all right. That was his first film. I love Requiem for a Dream. Like, that's that's a crazy movie. Ass to ass at the end of that. And then <laughs> one day, I know that one day we will definitely get to Mother with Jennifer Lawrence by Darren. That's his most recent film. Um, have you have you ever seen Mother, LaShawn? So, yes, I have. Um, the first time I watched it, I was drinking and I fell asleep halfway because I thought it was so boring. Um, the second time, I was a lot less drunk and... Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it quite a bit, but only because I had read what people thought about it and mm. the deep meanings behind certain things. And I kind of wanted to piece it together. But as a movie, I felt like it wasn't it was kind of a mixture of genres. It, it lost yeah. me. Yeah, I, I, I don't even know if to this day I would consider Mother a movie. I would consider it a fairy tale, if anything. <laughs> Greed. D Darren Aronofsky is a very interesting filmmaker. Like I said, I haven't seen all of his films, but when when you think of, of Aronofsky and you think of, you know, like the Requiem for a Dream, Mother, I know even like he did Noah with Russell Crowe, which I've never seen. He he always has this kind of cerebral affect going on. And this movie fits the bill. It, this is definitely a psychological thriller, I would say, where, you know, half the time you can't really trust what you're seeing. You need to actually keep watching the movie and try and pick up on clues to understand what might be the truth and what might be false. And I guess now that we've already told the story that I thought I had seen this movie with LaShawn back in the day, when I watched it, I realized it was for the first time. I, I kind of, I'm torn between saying I love it I, I really enjoyed it, because I've now watched it twice. I watched it once when I was choosing it for this series, and then once again yesterday in preparation for this recording. I don't think I love it. I think I thoroughly respect it. I think that's a good way for me to say it, because, as LaShawn told me in uh, his, his off-mic version of this movie, it's a slow burn. Like, it takes a while for this movie <laughs> to actually do something. And I, I'm not disagreeing with you there this does take some time to get going it really takes like i think you know maybe what like an hour and six minutes for her to go to the club scene when you're finally seeing her break down everything before that is just like why am i listening to natalie portman do a little girl voice 
<laughs> no, you're definitely right on that. And the the biggest thing with it was it's one of those movies that's so deep that they have to set the platform and set the story like to a T. So you fully understand what's going to happen next. And they do a great job of doing that. So for that, you know, I applaud them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think where I wanted to start, I think now we're firmly in just discussing this movie. And I think since it's so popular, we don't need to do a plot breakdown or anything like that. If you've never seen this movie, I highly recommend you check it out. Um, if you're into psychological thrillers, this is that to a T. Like, uh, it, is a, it is a great psychological thriller. Um, the thing that really stood out to me on my second viewing is how mirrors pervade almost every scene. Like, I think 90% of this, like, 100-minute movie, there's at least one mirror in every single scene. And it, that just not only shows, well, what the theme of this movie with the duality is, but that's some masterful directing as well, to be able to place the camera in a dressing room where every surface is mirrors, and you are seeing so many people in every single shot. Did you pick up on the that, that mirror aspect ever, LaShawn? Oh, yeah, with, without a doubt. And um, it started off in the beginning, like really early on. You know, she kept waking up and having scars and scratches, and she would always look in the mirror. You know, her mom even pulled her and, and like, turned her around to look in the mirror, which makes no sense. Why would her mom turn her around to look <laughs> yes. in the mirror? It's like, obviously, you know that you have scars on your back that you're trying to hide from me, so I'm going to turn you around and point at it. I'm going to look but at it in beside. the mirror, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 really and and not only do the mirrors pervade so many scenes and get at the notion of, of of doppelgangers which is a huge part of this movie and that's something I want to talk about in great detail we do get a, a few scenes that just cater to me and what I love seeing I love the idea that if you're standing in front of a mirror and you do one thing and the mirror image does not reflect that that is so cool to me. Freaky. <laughs> oh, that is, yeah, that is so freaky. I think we need more of that stuff in movies. Like, I I wish I could have a mirror that I... I this, this isn't for the restaurant. This is just something Rob wants in real life. He wants a light-delayed mirror. Like, I want to own a real-life mirror that if I, like, wave my hand in front of it, it takes, like, ten seconds for the mirror to show me <laughs> waving my hand. That is so cool. <laughs> It's funny that you mentioned that because I know when this movie first came out, um, it's been a while since I've seen the trailer, but a lot of people thought that it was more of a horror film, okay. and they got that interpretation from the way the trailer was edited, if I remember correctly. But I'll have to go back and double-check that one. So you're right on that. Mirrors are a freaky thing, and I think it's that whole thing of, like, nobody wants to be alone with themselves. Nobody wants to sit there and, like stare at yourself and like dig deep like that's a terrifying thing on its own for a lot of people so mm -hmm. like i just i don't know mirrors are crazy <laughs> oh oh absolutely yeah Th this is definitely you know i the only horror in this movie i i remember reading that like i said where uh, a lot of people thought this was going to be horror and once the word of mouth got out that it was something different from straight horror it got some attention but that, that's not to say that there is not some element of horror. I would say specifically, there's some body horror in this movie. Like, oh, God, yes. <laughs> who, who in the world? This is a serious question for you, LaShawn. Who fucking cuts their fingernails with scissors? Use nail clippers. <laughs> like, who does so that? That, that big time was horrifying. Like, the suspense of just, like, her snipping 
And like, I think they did that one to get the audio of like that clipping sound, like, yes. or the scissor sound. And so that was like to a T and that scene went on for way too long. Like it could have just been like, Oh, she's cutting her nails. But like the sharp objects thing where, um, it's the scissors and then like the broken glass, like all those different scenes with sharp objects. Like that's like the ultimate, like, Oh man, that really gets you like shooting. Someone's one thing, but stabbing like, Oh man, that's next level. Oh yeah. I was so, I was like legitimately cringing while watching this movie because one, nobody should cut their fingernails with scissors. But two, that scene in like the bathroom where she pulls the skin from her cuticle and it like rips all the way down her finger. I'm like, ah, (laughs) good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a mafia torture stuff. (laughs) Oh yeah. That so, so this, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm not, we've seen a bunch of stuff on cinemodities that's really gory and bloody and I have no problem with it. But when it gets that personal, when it gets that detailed to be like, this could happen to you, you know, it's different from like Quentin Tarantino where people are vomiting blood for eight straight minutes. It's like, yeah, sure. You know, that's gore. That's over the top. But one little scene of skin just ripping and her scratching at herself. I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, I almost want to gag. It's insane that a movie on this small of a scale can make me feel that way, right? Oh, yeah, I agree. And it's just like you said, those like fine little like injuries, you know, to the point where it's like they would show goosebumps and stuff like that. Or would it be considered goosebumps or swan bumps? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like that swan bumps. Yes. <laughs> but they show those swan bumps or whatever, and uh, it makes you feel the same way. It's like it triggers that weird sensation. It's almost like a ghost pain seeing that happen to a person. You know, I don't know if that's a thing or not, but I feel like you get secondhand goosebumps. <laughs> oh, oh, a- absolutely. It made me cringe both times I've seen, even when I knew it was coming. And that's a testament to this movie that even even though I knew it was coming, I was still just like, oh, God, should I look away? Like, is this when it's going to happen? Like, oh, that skeeves me so hard. And even some of the other um, in in the breakdown scene at the end where, where Natalie Portman slams the door on her mother's hand. And you get, like, that oh, CGI yeah. shot of the fingers bending backwards. And it it's great CGI because it's so quick you don't notice that it's CGI. But it that that messes me up, too. Like, that, her fingers go the wrong way. <laughs> oh, yeah. She got her twice. She was not, you know, there was no half-assing that. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, this, yeah. So there is a, la- a layer of gore in this movie that is, even though it's minimal, it really hits when it shows up. And... And the movie does a great job at punctuating it because I think one of my one of my favorite touches that I noticed at the end, and we'll, we'll have to talk about the freak out breakdown scene at the end in great detail because that might be the best scene in the movie <laughs> when she's pulling feathers out of her back. Is is that oh, when yeah. she finally falls asleep and like she wakes up and like she has socks over her hands because the mother's like you were scratching, I needed to stop you from scratching. We get a shot of the music box ballerina that was broken by Natalie Portman in the earlier scene and it's still dancing, but it's just one leg and a torso. Like its arms are gone. It's second leg is gone. It's head is gone. And it's just like, wow, like that encapsulates her breakdown into nothing but the black swan dancer perfectly. Well that, and then like, so a couple of the scenes like where the paintings were blinking and stuff, it's at first, like you think that you're seeing things because the character doesn't acknowledge the blinking painting. And then she kind of starts to walk out of the room and then she pauses. So then you're like, wait, 
am I crazy? Like, did that painting blink at me? Yeah. And then finally she turns around and she's like, wait a second, that's not right. But there's just those scenes where you she second guesses herself and then you second guess yourself. So it completely just messes with what you're thinking. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and I think I think that that brings me to something I really wanted to to talk to you about with this movie because it's so dense, as we've said already. I I think that a a huge aspect of this is the unreliable. I was going to say unreliable narrator. It's unreliable visuals. Like we don't really we don't we see things and like you said we second guess ourselves. And the first thing that makes me think of this is. Um, when, when Natalie Portman gets the role as the Swan Queen, she doesn't think she's get it. She tells the other uh, dancer congratulations, and then the other dancer's like, oh, fuck yeah. you, like, you stupid bitch, why would you do that? Monica. you say that? Hmm? Your idea of some sick joke? What? Fuck you. And she goes, Natalie Portman goes into the bathroom and she calls her mom in the stall and she's like, I got the part, like it's great. And when she leaves the bathroom, the word whore is written on the mirror in lipstick. Is, is the implication that Natalie Portman wrote that herself? Because we don't see anybody else in the bathroom. We don't hear anybody else in the bathroom. And this is after she's already stolen the lipstick from Beth, from Winona Ryder, from Lydia Dietz. And, and if, if our audience doesn't know, every time Winona Ryder will always be Lydia Dietz to me, the, the young girl from Beetlejuice. She is Lydia Dietz. She is Winona Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, Lydia Dietz is in this movie. So on my second viewing, I was like, wait, are, are we just, like, not seeing... Natalie Portman introspectively thinking she's a whore because she had to kiss and bite the company director to get that part. I, I, what, what were your thoughts on that? Do you think she wrote that or was that somebody else like in that 15 seconds where she's on the phone, someone ran in, wrote whore and ran out? Honestly, that went over my head until you just mentioned that. Okay. Like that is crazy. And so my, my thoughts now are that it was that she was just seeing things. And I think that's one of those things where mm. if we were to really pick apart this film, there's other instances where things were there that weren't really there that really just make you think that they're there. Like, yes. oh, man, it's just some Inception type stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's kind of one of the things that I love about this movie and, and why I, I enjoy it and respect it so much is because it makes you think in that way. And that that's what I want from a movie. You know, I don't just want a big spectacle and everything spelled out for us. I want to be like, oh. Who wrote that? Was it her? Was it somebody else? Does it really matter in the context of the movie? You know, is she crazy? Well, yes. Is she not? It's fantastic. Oh, you just don't want them to insert Michael Bay explosions and Transformer noises? <laughs> <laughs> if anything, every movie needs a shot of the the hot girl in the movie just looking in the distance with a blank stare and explosions going off behind her in slow motion. That's what every movie needs. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so the other thing that makes me think that the first, of course, early on in the movie, we get where uh, Nina, Natalie Portman's character, she has like scratches on her back and the mother's like, what is that? And she's like, nothing. And the movie doesn't pay attention to it till later. 
But even before the scene with the whore written on the mirror, Nina has no problems. She's just like sitting in the hallway and she sees Lydia she sees Lydia Dietz in her dressing room like throwing shit and getting angry. And then she leaves and she's like, what do you want? And she, Winona Ryder just leaves. Nina has no problem just going in and stealing shit. Like, clearly Nina has something wrong with her. She's just like, okay, this person just left. I'm going to go in her dressing room and steal these objects. <laughs> hey, honestly, I mean, it's fair game, but I think that's that goes back to the whole, like, her mom has just held her in her little bubble for so long. Oh, yeah. She has no clue how to operate, like, make decisions on her own, what's right or wrong. Like, she knows nothing. Like, she just exists. And now she's finally learning how to, like, be a part of the world. And I think that ties into a lot of people's lives. You know, you, it, it happened to us. We saw it. You know, we had kids from college or go to college and never, ever left their mom's house. And now all of yeah. a sudden you're expected to figure out life on your own. Good luck. Yeah, yeah. No, that that's a, that's a really good point for sure. And I, I think that that's one of the things that I – one of the aspects of this movie I really, really love is that it's a slow reveal how absolutely fucking crazy the mother is. Because in the first scene with her, it's just like – it's like, yeah, you know, she's, her daughter has scratches. She's helping, she's helping Nina, you know, like, get ready for parts and get her outfit on and all that stuff. And then we get, like, the slow reveal that she just paints – an ungodly amount of absolutely terrible portraits of Nina. Like, she cannot paint to save her life. Those portraits suck. But while she's painting them, she's crying, and she's, like, sobbing <laughs> as she's painting them. And then eventually we get to the scene where she's like, you got the part, I bought us our favorite cake. And Nina's like, I only want a little bit. And she goes, fuck you, I'm gonna throw it out! And it's just like, oh my god, this woman is unhinged. <laughs> it's our favorite. Vanilla with strawberry filling. Oh, Mom, not too big. Oh, that's way, way too much. It's a celebration. It's just this once. Mom, my stomach's still in knots. Fine. Fine. Then it's garbage. No, Mom, don't. I'm sorry. I'm just... So proud of you. You look so yummy. <laughs> and then her mom's apolog like after she apologized and everything, her mom's just like, uh, I forgot what she says to her. She's just like, I just wanted to give you cake. Like she just calms down instantly. She <laughs> yes. just wanted to give you cake. Yeah, it, it's it's <laughs> it's that type of it's that type of relationship that as far as the movie tells us, you know, this is what Nina has known. It seems like Nina has never lived outside. She's always just lived with her mother. You know, exemplified by that scene where I think the mother says something like, I don't want you to make the same mistakes that I made. And Nina's like, oh, yep. thanks. And it's like, it's like Nina's thinking the mistake the mother is talking about is having her as, as a child. And then she's like, no, I didn't mean that. Like, I don't want you to be taken advantage of. And Nina's just like, you know, I don't understand what you mean. Like, this is the industry, isn't it? Because we've already had... The fantastic, another very funny scene, I think the scene that I'm describing with the mother, comes after Nina has a drink with um, the, the dance company head, um, Leroy, Thomas Leroy in the movie. I only know him as Vincent Cassell, who's a great actor. Um, probably my favorite, favorite performance in the movie, where he goes and they have drinks together and he goes, I've got a little homework assignment for you. Go home and touch yourself. Live a little. Yep. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm watching this and um, I'm like, that's a bold statement, man. <laughs> you enjoy making love? Excuse me? Oh, come on. Sex. Do you enjoy it? <laughs> well, we need to be able to talk about this. I got a little homework assignment for you. Go home and touch yourself. Live a little. I honestly wasn't expecting what happens next because so like she wakes up and I'm like, okay, cool. She wakes up like no big deal. People wake up all the time. And the next thing I know, she just starts going to town and I'm like, oh, she's finally doing it. She's getting that fat fat. And then her mom ruins everything. <laughs> yes. And so I'm like, yep, there we go. Another one of them little hidden motifs. That that might be the most horror movie type scene in the entire film, like beyond the body horror. Because oh, yeah. I think everybody in the <laughs> world, if you put yourself where you start masturbating and then your your parent, a parent, is in the room and you don't realize that until after you've started masturbating, oh my God, that's some like... That is terrifying. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm pretty sure that that's the opening scene to every American Pie movie. Don't quote <laughs> me on that. But it usually starts off with somebody doing something weird, and that's how it ends. That and and so okay, so so what we're saying is that every American Pie movie is a horror movie. <laughs> yes. Yes. Without a doubt. <laughs> yes. When when Eugene Levy finds uh, his son fucking the pie, it's just played like a horror film. Oh my god! I want somebody to recut that. Take out the goofy music from that scene. Put in like this Black Swan music and recut that as a horror movie. That would be so funny. Oh man, someone's gonna do it. Watch. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Oh, oh yeah. So so the. I guess uh, two things I want to talk about. Since we're on the the masturbation topic of this movie, I th <laughs> I think this is the first time in Cinemodity's history that we have a a female masturbation scene, but also a girl on girl scene, which we'll get to. But this is also the second <laughs> week in a row that we have a masturbation scene. So we actually had a ma Andrew Garfield in Under the Silver Lake. I don't know if Lashawn's seen it. He masturbates furiously while music is playing in reverse, and it's amazing. Now we get Natalie Portman tr touching herself in bed and in the bathtub. This is a great. This is a great year for cinemodities. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you just got to live a little sometimes, right? Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. I, I got homework <laughs> for you. Go home and touch yourself. Live a little. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> so, so I do want to talk about um, the. Because as we said, with this whole movie, it's so dense with the idea of, one, Natalie Portman wanting artistic perfection. Um, uh, Mila Kunis searching for that kind of, um, you know, natural talent perspective. And then we have the outward antagonist. I would definitely consider Natalie Portman an antagonist. She is self-mutilating. She's hurting herself. She's doing these things to herself that she doesn't want to. But the outward antagonist is Thomas Leroy the head of the dance company, who's played by Vincent Cassell. And I, I think I have to say, Vincent Cassell, he's, he's got to be my favorite performance in the movie. He is so low-key villainous that I love it. Where he's just like, I need to push you. And the, the scene that really stood out to me is when him and Natalie Portman stay late to work on her Black Swan routine, and he, like, starts kissing her, and he's like, open your mouth, open your mouth, like, like, 
tongue kiss me, you know, all that stuff. And then he just pushes her aside and he goes, see, that was me seducing you. It needs to be the other way around. And I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's some dirty shit right there. Feel my touch. Respond to it. Come on. That was me seducing you when it needs to be the other way around. Please. He is awesome. <laughs> and I also think that it's very interesting that Vincent Cassell is the head of a dance company in this movie. Because I think most of peop- most people, he's a, he's a French man. He's French actor. He's been in a lot of French movies that I would imagine most U.S. people have not seen. But one of the things that he's best known for in the U.S. is when he has his own dance number dodging lasers in Ocean's 12. He's a jewel thief in Ocean's 12, and there's literally a three-minute portion where he is doing, like, a breakdance to dodge lasers in Ocean's 12. And now he's the head of a dance company. I think that's a great juxtaposition. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so so what, did you think, awesome. what did you think about uh, Leroy, Thomas Leroy, Vincent Cassell, as this kind of outward... Well, I guess my first question would be, do you see him as an antagonist? That's a tough one. I'd say I do um, because in the grand scheme of things, he pushes her to take risks that Mm. she shouldn't really have to take. But technically, they're necessary for her development as a person. So it's, it's definitely tough. But I'd say that he's I don't know. That's that's my thoughts on that one. He's the instigator, it seems. He's the he's the whole catalyst, the spark for how she starts to go down the wrong path. Exactly. And I think the the thing with him is it's not it's one of those things where it's it's not his fault. He just is pushing her to live a little, but then she and her she versus her versus herself, I think that's where it's the whole the major conflict of the the show is her versus herself. And Absolutely. he's just a side character. Absolutely. Well, well, I do have to say, probably one of the when I when I finally watched this movie for the first time, which I thought was not the first time, um, I did love the fact <laughs> that when you know we get the the start of the movie, it's really it's that great rule of threes, and this is a great example of it. That when when he's up on they're at the party or the gala or whatever, and he's announcing Nina as the new Swan Queen, the new head of the dance company. He is saying goodbye to Lydia Dietz, Winona Ryder, and he calls her his little princess. And then, yep. and then in the middle of the movie, um, you know, Mila Kunis and Natalie Portman are talking, and I think, you know, uh, Natalie Portman says something like, oh, he called Beth his little princess, and, and Mila Kunis says he probably calls all the girls that. And she's like, no, you don't know him like I do, and the scene goes on. And then at the very end of the movie, when Natalie Portman is bleeding out on the mattress at the at the end of the play, and and Vincent Cassell is so like be like you did it you you made this a success, she he says to her you like you are my little princess and it's that it's that final encapsulation that he is this evil man 
who's just using actresses to his benefit. I love that little bit. But Natalie Portman doesn't care, because at the end of the movie, Natalie Portman's like, I felt it. For one moment, I felt perfection, and now I'm going to die. And it, it's, it's just a perfect little bow <laughs> on the movie. Yeah, that whole death finds freedom or whatever they kept mentioning a couple times whenever, you know, she would tell people what the Black Swan play was actually about, which, funny enough, other than, like, this movie, I did not ever hear of the Black Swan story. So this was all new to me. I was like, the Black Swan. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. okay. Sounds yeah, it was, <laughs> Sounds like it has it was something end. that I just knew tangentially about. I guess it should say um, this is this movie was chosen for the artistic perfection ideas and the women in the industry motif. Um, uh, I think I speak for both of us. Neither Rob or LaShawn are big ballet fans. You know, I mean, we know we know that like the Nutcracker exists, right? <laughs> That's it. Right. <laughs> I mean, I did see Aladdin as a young little laddie. When I was, oh, okay. you know, on a high school, high school field trip, middle school field trip. And uh, I thought about what I'd look like in tights, and it wasn't really a pretty <laughs> thing. So I never went down. That's, that's good. I like that. I like that. Yeah, I've never worn tights either. Um, that's not that's not my scene, you know. That you remember. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so, so uh, yes, I love Vincent uh, Cassell in this performance. He's a, He is that, that, and that, you know, kind of instigatory antagonist like we said but the conflict with nina and herself is more important and and probably also secondarily more than vincent cassell is nina versus not really mila kunis nina versus her perception of mila kunis because there's so much of course in if you when you watch this movie that nina thinks happens between her and and mila kunis i I just keep saying mila kunis who does she play she plays lily in this movie um, but to me, she's always just going to be Mila Kunis. I, I, I think that's another big driving force of this film. I, I think we've disagreed about this before in the past, LaShawn, but I have to bring it up because I, I think this is the first time we're hitting Mila Kunis in a movie. We've done Natalie Portman before a bunch of times with um, Vox Lux and Annihilation. And she's great in those. I have to say, though, I've never been a really big fan of Mila Kunis. Like, like she she just seems like weird, quirky girl to me. I, I never find her believable in every any role I ever see her in. Do, I, I think you like her a little bit more than I do, right, if I remember correctly? <laughs> I definitely do. And I think it's just because she's – I think that role for her is perfect because it may just be the dark hair, but she's got that edgy feel, that edgy vibe, and she's not necessarily as um, – risque as like scarlet or something like that johansson sure and uh but she's very close it's like a god i don't know how to say this without being a creep but she's like <laughs> the teenage adolescent version of who scarlet johansson is now like the mature version mm. of like the sexiness the powerful woman that doesn't care you know the bends the rules breaks the rules you know kicks the guys in the balls type of thing she she is good in this role. Like, I definitely don't think she was miscast or anything because I think this movie says it really well when, you know, Nina is watching her dance and, and Vincent Cassell says something like, look at her. You know, she's imprecise. She's not perfect, but she has that effortlessness. She has that natural talent. And, and that's definitely how Mila Kunis kind of plays this role, which is appropriate. But I... I, I, every time I've ever seen her in anything, I'm just like, she's just Mila Kunis. Like, she never 
for me, evolves into a role. I just see her as, you know, Jackie from that 70s show. I see her as Meg from Family Guy. I see her as just who she's played and not who she's supposed to be. But see, those are perfect examples, though, because it's that the teenager, you know, that young woman that doesn't quite know what she's doing, just, you know, kind of like a rebel, a little bit lost, but at the same time, just having fun, slightly hippie, but also very edgy. Like, you know, you'll go in her room one day and it'll be like death metal posters. And then you come in the next day and it's like My Little Pony. And then you just <laughs> never know what you're going to get. Like, she's just trying to figure out life, like just wild card. That that's an interesting idea, and you know maybe that's a good point. Maybe it's because I think two things. Maybe because I see that as such a strong personality, I can't see her blending into a role. I I definitely also think that you know I I would say I would argue that her most famous role is as Meg Griffin in Family Guy. Of course, you can make the argument for that '70s show. You know, it's Jackie, but I personally do have a distaste for characters that are just 100% of the time brunts of jokes. And that's what Meg Griffin is, you know? Like, Meg Griffin is just the one that gets picked on all the time. And and as, as, a, as a personal thing, I hate that. I think that characters that constantly get shit on by the story and the script are worthless. You know, the, the more recent <laughs> example is I hate Jerry in Rick and Morty. Like, Jerry is just a fucking loser, and I wish he does not exist. Like, he, is, he has no purpose in the show that does not gain anything for the, for the, the story. But that's just me. That's a very personal feeling. Uh, Rick and Morty, I, I don't think LaShawn and I ever talked about. I have a love-hate relationship with Rick and Morty. There's, like, it's an episode-by-episode basis. There's some episodes I think are amazing, but, like, most of the episodes, I'm like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> no, I'm, I actually... I think we talked about it one time or whenever I was in Colorado because we agreed that it's not necessarily a funny show and it's not necessarily like traditional comedy, but it's better to me than Family Guy sure. in the sense that it's digging a little bit deeper and their jokes are a little bit more uh, less, what's the slapstick type, you know, beating up Peter or yeah. Stewie shooting somebody. I can't, that gets old to me really quick. But the characters that you don't like, I think that a lot of people sympathize or, I guess, empathize with those characters mm-hmm. because, one, they're the people that like to bully. And so, like, bullying, as much as we try to, you know, promote that or well, we uh, we try to promote people not bullying. Yes. <laughs> <I don't> think... <laughs> you heard it here but first. Because... Cinemodities. We are pro-bullying. <laughs> <laughs> don't quote me on that. One. But um, because we do that. Um, it makes it kind of like a taboo thing, you know? You don't get to pick on people like that in real life. So if you did, this is what you would be doing. Because you know how many times a day we stop ourselves from being like, I could totally write this mean thing to this person, but, you know, I've been told you don't do that. So it's kind of like uh, a release for people to be able to see that, that character getting bullied. That's a really good point. I don't think I've ever thought of that. I, I don't think I've ever thought about that aspect that way. Because regardless of what our audience thinks, Rob is not an intrinsically mean person. I I totally <laughs> have bought that theory with like gore, like Quentin Tarantino movies. It's like that's what I want, you know. I wanna I wanna shoot people in the head in video games because I can't shoot them in the head in real life, you know? 
that's kind of the same thing is that we we are taking this as this vicarious nature of like we can't be mean all the time and these these TV shows and movies distill it down to let's just be completely mean to this one character the whole time. That's a really good point. Yep. I like that. Yeah, just a, a weird random thought but yeah, no, that uh, who are we even talking about? What was the character Mila, we were just Mila discussing Kunis, in that? Yeah. Oh, Mila. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I think yeah, if you came into the movie with that perception in mind, I could I could see it not really working out for you as her as a character, you know, and everything. But for me, I gave her kind of a clean slate, and I was like, oh, she's edgy, she's tough, like she's definitely okay. Black Swan. Like I I wouldn't pick anyone else for that movie. Well, I'm sure I would if it's going to be a sex scene, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> if you just boil down which two women in Hollywood do we want to see go down on each other, then yes, the the floodgates are open. <laughs> <laughs> so so no that that's a really good point um you know i i think that that that's something I'd, I'd like to watch other movies with mila kunis now with that in mind because i've been so kind of focused on who i think she is um that that that's a really great idea i i think also with her notion she is cast correctly as a the idea of a doppelganger for natalie portman i'm not saying they look exactly the same but in terms of, like, what would an understudy for a dance company be, they work well together. Like, that, I could see that, you know. Okay. If, if you take Natalie Portman out and put in Mila Kunis and they can dance the same way, the audience wouldn't know the difference. No, I agree. And um, I think you see that, you know, even in, you know, we've talked about this infamous scene here quite a bit. But even during that scene, when she gets confused by who is actually, you know, going down on her, mm-hmm. it's it's kind of that same thing of, is it me or is it her? And then even the next day, she's like, I'm pretty sure it was you. And she's like, no, it was definitely in your head. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the great, but before I, the line before what I said in my intro, did you have some sort of lezzy wet dream about me? Where uh, <laughs> Natalie Portman is like, you slept over last night. And, and Mila Kunis says, uh, not unless your name is Tom and you have a dick. <laughs> <laughs> hey. Look, she just wanted some more kid and asked me to step back, okay? I overslept. Uh-huh. Oops. Well, hey, at least you had a good time, right? You put something in my drink. Yeah. And then you just took off in the morning. In the morning? Yeah, you slept over. Um, no. Well, this name is Tom and you got a dick. <laughs> we... What we want, Nina? Did you have some sort of Leslie wet dream about me? Stop. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You did. You fantasized about me. Shut up. <gasps> Was I good? Like, she's just she's unabashedly like, oh, upfront about it. It's fantastic. <laughs> I love how chill she was. She was just like, it's cool. I'm a hippie. I'm down with whatever. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I do want to talk about that. That's where the movie gets going. When she goes out to for drinks with, Nat, with uh, Mila Kunis... When Lily and Nina are are at the club, whatever you want to call it, that's when the movie really starts to pick up. And sure does. And you know she um she she puts ecstasy in the drink, and she's like you know it's not going to last more than a couple hours, and it's like okay you know Nina is so far gone from that world that she has no idea what to expect. Um, there, there's a there's one thing I want to mention uh, about the the scene before she starts rolling and before she's like. 
we get that great shot of the dance scene with the rave lights, and then she's just making out with a random dude in the bathroom. Before that, when Mila Kunis has, like, picked up the guys or got the guy's attention, and she's like, this is Tom, and this is Jerry. And he's like, no, my name is Andrew. <laughs> and Andrew, <Yep. laughs> I, I think this, I, I did not notice this until I did my research for this movie. Andrew, who, who Natalie Portman has a scene with talking about the ballet and all that stuff, Andrew is played by Sebastian Stan. Sebastian Stan has been in a few things before this movie, but following Black Swan, he becomes, for I think a six-film run, Bucky Barnes in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Who's that? Exactly. Marvel, the MCU sucks. (laughs) I hate the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But anybody who loves Marvel... He is the Winter Soldier. He is he is the the uh, the guy who gets like good. I'm so happy, Lashawn, that you don't care about this as much as I do. I needed to mention it though because we get to see Sebastian Stan like drunkenly telling Natalie Portman she's beautiful, and then he becomes one of the main characters in the Marvel Cinematic Universe after this. Amazing that that relationship exists. I had to bring that up because this movie is infinitely better than any Marvel movie, period. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely agree with you on that. (laughs) Good, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. It's been a long-running thing on this podcast that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is garbage. (laughs) (laughs) So, so yes, uh, Bucky Barnes is in this movie. I had to mention that. But after that scene, we get the rave scene where Natalie Portman's rolling and she's dancing. It's tough to notice, but... I I was reading about this, and I went back, and I actually tried to look through the scene. Whenever we get flashes of light in the club scene when she's dancing, all of the faces in the background, like for the very brief moments we get to see them, are Natalie Portman's face. So, So you you know how, like, the whole movie, she's seeing herself in other people, whether it be strangers, whether it be Mila Kunis. She's really, like, having this doppelganger feel. If, if you skip through those scenes in the rave and you pause when, like, light flashes, in the foreground is Natalie Portman with some dude or, or Mila Kunis. All the other women's faces are Natalie Portman's face. Oh, man, that's genius. I yeah, love it. Yeah, it, it's so, it's such a tiny detail. And once I read about that I, and I started to look for it, I'm like, man, that's great. And then it cuts to her getting slammed against a bathroom stall by a random dude. And she, like, snaps out of it, and she leaves the bathroom stall. She tries to leave the club. Um, Mila Kunis follows her. They both go home. The one thing we don't know, I guess it's kind of implied that it's a dream, but Mila Kunis tries to start feeling her up in the cab. Yep. And, And the next shot we get is one of the best examples of directing I've seen in a long, long time is when Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis show up to the mother's apartment because this is the thing we don't know yet. We don't know that Mila Kunis isn't there. We, we don't know that till the following scene, but we see Natalie Portman and Mila Kunis go into the apartment and the mother confronts Natalie Portman. There is no shot in that scene where Mila Kunis and the mother are in the same frame. The only time we see them together is when the when Natalie Portman says something like, I'm not 12 anymore, you don't have to follow me, or whatever, and she grabs Mila Kunis's hand and runs down the hallway, that's the only shot we see Mila Kunis in the same frame as the mother. 
but the mother is in a mirror. It's a reflection. It's not the actual mother. And the mother never pays any attention to Mila Kunis. Wouldn't you think if Mila Kunis was actually there, the mother would look at her, would acknowledge her, would say, who is this woman? Like, why did you bring her back to my apartment? Masterful directing. The only time they're together is when one, one of them is a reflection in a mirror. That's craziness. Yeah, that completely went over my head. Out of the, well, the second time I've watched it. And uh, oh, that's wild. Like, I'm still trying to process that. Like, that is... Oh, I hate oh, being, it's, having it's, my mind played with. Like I that. know. It's <laughs> so... This is a movie, I would say, you know, if you've seen it once, if you've seen it twice, watch it again. Pay attention to some of the little details. Like, this will blow you away. Because it really makes... Those little details, as, as we've said many times before on Cinemodities, you might not have noticed... But your brain notices, and that's what makes a good psychological thriller. It gives you that sense of unease as you're going through these things. And I think this movie does it fantastically in the sense of mirrors, that when you see a 2D film, when you see you know a, a rectangle on a TV screen, everything is just there to you. If you watch this movie and you literally pay attention to how many things are seen in mirrors, you're going to lose your mind, because it's like... 60% of the movie is shot through mirrors. That's true. So I got a question for you, yes. speaking of mirrors again. If, taking a look at the, what was, what was that guy? What was that guy again? The studio director guy. Uh, Vincent Cassell. What's his name? Yeah, Vincent Cassell. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> so him and the mom, they both play different roles. You know, it's kind of like you're a good friend that you're, well, it's, actually pretty literal but the person that sits on your one shoulder that's like oh do all these bad things and then the other person that's like do all these good things so do you think in life that it's good to have those people or do you think it's best to just have people figure things out on their own like if the mom and the director were gone what would happen to her is it better for her to not have any guidance that that's interesting. So the the shoulder thing for sure. I didn't really think about that, but you kind of have that that angel and devil type of thing, where you know Vincent Cassell is the devil trying to push her to be something she's not, where the mother is trying to protect her from those things. If if she's not there, if, if they're not there, I should say, then it becomes kind of you just have Natalie Portman's strive for perfection and. Right. Ooh, oh, that's – so if, if you take those characters away and you just have Natalie Portman strive for perfection, I think you get the movie Whiplash. Have you ever seen Whiplash about the drummer? No, I've missed out on that one. That is one of my favorite movies ever. But that's a very linear and straight-lined movie where it's just like you have a guy who wants to be the best. He wants to be a fantastic drummer. And he does have a little bit of Devil and Angel, but he's like focused in on himself – I think that's what this movie becomes if you don't have those strive those battling forces. And and how that would turn out, I'm tempted to say that I think Natalie Portman would go down a similar path that she does in this movie because of the influence of Mila Kunis or other dancers. Like like say Lydia Dietz, uh Winona Ryder, that she had to you know, we get that scene earlier in the movie where they confront each other and Winona Ryder's like What'd you do to get this this part? Did you suck his cock? Did you sleep with him? <laughs> and and she would still be influenced by those types of thoughts, even though she didn't do that. I think that she would maybe reach the same point, just not as quickly, if that makes sense. I, 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And then, because I, I was thinking as you were explaining your answer to that one, is uh, is that guy? I never, I will never say his name right. Like I'm terrible with names. <laughs> Vincent so Cassell, yes. Clearly, so that guy. Let's. Is it necessarily bad in the grand scheme of life itself to give in to those indulgences, the sex, the drugs, the alcohol, you know, the staying up late? Because those things don't become a problem till they affect your nine to five job or whatever. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you can masturbate all you want. But once you start masturbating and missing work or masturbating at work or masturbating, you know, on your lunch break, yes. that's when it becomes a problem. So who's to say that she was kind of going down this bad path because who decides that that's bad? Yeah, yeah. It, it's all about um, functionality. You know, it, it's bad when those things consume your life and make you unable to function for sure. You know, it's like uh, it makes me think of the uh, I think one of the most famous you know, mid-90s to late-90s Robert Downey Jr. stories. For our audience, or for LaShawn, if you don't know, Robert Downey Jr., before he was Iron Man, he was a insane heroin addict. And there are literally stories of him being on set of, like, Ally McBeal, where other actors would say things like, what is wrong with you? Like, why are you doing this to yourself? Why are you so fucked up, you junkie? And he goes does it not make the show work? Like, can I still act? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, then shut the fuck up. Leave me alone. He was functional. <laughs> and and that's not to say, you know, if, if you're functional, you could do heroin or anything like that. We're not supporting that <laughs> on Cinemodities. But I think that's exactly what you're getting at, LaShawn, is the idea of is, is just being privy to those vices necessarily a bad thing? And I would say no. Um, everything is okay in moderation. Most things are okay in moderation. And... If if Nina can be this great black swan without, you know, going off the deep end and stabbing herself at the end of the movie, then, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. Hmm. I can respect that. I can definitely dig well, it. Once she, once she thinks she's killing Mila Kunis, well, once she thinks she's killing herself and then Mila Kunis and then herself again, then there's an issue. <laughs> but I also love her determination because she was like, you know what? The show must go on. Like... These people oh, yeah. paid for their tickets, and I'm not going to give them a bad show. Like, we'll deal with this dead body and the blood later. Like, regardless. Like, I'm, I'm finishing this show, and I love that. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. I have, I have a great respect for any, any movie, any character in, in, you know, anything. Literature, film, whatever. Um, when characters strive for excellence and just want to do best for their art, I have a huge respect for that. That's one of my favorite themes. And this movie hits on it perfectly. I feel like at the end of this, we have to recap all the things that we're supportive of and the things that we're not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, either that or put in disclaimers. Be like, okay, just so everybody knows, heroin is bad. A little bit of partying is okay if you still go to work the next day. (laughs) Oh, man, but this movie is definitely deep. We could sit here and talk about this one for hours. And, like, we haven't even touched on some of the, like, the deep, dark, like, the death and uh, all that stuff where they mention about death and being freeing and how it's beautiful and it's still a great story because at the end of the day, like, she found her happiness. She found her freedom. But it's like, damn, that's deep stuff. Like, oh. she killed herself. Like oh, the, yeah. You yeah, know? Kill, killed herself uh, literally and metaphorically at the end of The Black Swan when she jumps off, you know, from the from the height, from the cliff into the, into the uh, mattress for sure. And... And that's another scene that I definitely love in that transition because, you know, we're watching Natalie Portman go from the white swan to the black swan really throughout the whole movie. 
not just in terms of the play, but from her own perspective. And in that rehearsal, when she has to jump off the cliff onto the mattress, she hesitates, she you know. Yeah, yeah. V- Vincent's like, now jump, now jump. And she's like just looking and she's scared. And it's like when she finally makes that jump, it's like, okay, she's now accepting. She's ready to go out to the bar with Mila Kunis. She's ready to, to you know, take ecstasy as long as it only lasts a few hours. She's ready for all that stuff. It's a great character arc for sure. Oh, yeah. And what's crazy is that I think the movie tries to, like, find this, tries to explain to us that you need a balance of everything. Like, it's the it's not necessarily the cheesy yin-yang type of uh, conversation, but it's mm-hmm. somewhat similar because she does a great job as White Swan, and then she can't do the Black Swan thing. Then yeah. the final performance comes around. She sucks as the White Swan and blames that dude. She's like, he dropped me. <laughs> and then... Can you tell me what the fuck happened? It wasn't my fault. He dropped me. All of a sudden is like, I'm a great Black Swan. And it's pretty cool because it's like, now that she's gone into the dark side, now she's too. she can't be controlled again. Like, she's lost that ability. Yeah. Oh, that, that scene when she dances as the Black Swan, the solo dance, and she literally transmorphs into the Black Swan. Like, the feathers grow out of her. That is so cool. Like, I, I love that visual, for sure. I almost, for a second, couldn't tell if that was, like, an actual costume or straight-up CGI. Like, I got lost, and I was like... That is epic, but oh, super, yeah. super amazing. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that's a testament to the movie because I'm I'm fairly certain it is CGI, but it, it's like it that's it's one of the great things in films that when you watch it, it doesn't matter if it's practical or it's CGI. You're watching it, you're loving it, you're immersed in the moment, and you're like, this is it. This is what the movie's been building to. She is finally the Black exactly. Swan, and you know it's like it's like what the end of the second act, and she's getting flowers thrown on stage and. And she, like, goes off stage, and, and Vincent's like, go back out there. Like, go accept the praise. And she just kisses him. Like, she just owns him. And <laughs> and the thing I love about that is I'm not sure. I couldn't tell on either viewing. When that happens, she does the dance. She becomes the swan. Everybody loves it. She goes off stage. She's told to go back to take her bow. She kisses Vincent. And when she lets the kiss go and runs back out on stage, we get a shot of Vincent's face, and he's, like, bewildered. He's like, oh. Oh, man, I didn't expect that. And there's a little bit of, like, red stuff on his upper lip. And one, yes, that could be lipstick, because they were going at it. They were doing a passionate kiss. <laughs> but my thought the second time when I watched this is, did she bite him again? Like, when she ran off the stage and was the black swan, did she kiss him, now her instigating the kiss, did she bite him again, and are we seeing blood? Because that would make sense, that she's now owned this thing that was always underneath her, this black swan, this this temptress, this seductress. Oh, I'm pretty sure she bit him, and I think okay. that was, like, the whole full circle thing. Like, I think that was exactly as you said. Like, it just completed everything. Like, she does own him. She owns the situation. Yep. She got rid of the people that were in her way, and instead of being manipulated by this guy, which I'm still torn if it's manipulation, it's kind of like the whole molding yeah. a young person when you're an older person, but... At some point, it gets creepy and weird. So I think that I'm going to just write that one off as creepy as weird, creepy <laughs> sure. and weird. Um, but yeah, it's just full circle. So now she's completely owned everything. She's not afraid of anything. Like everything bad, she has grasped it. Like it's under her control. So I don't know if it's still bad, but oh, yeah. she's she's using it to her benefit. Oh, it's so that 
the the ending of this movie is so satisfying. I think you know, like it's a it's a, like I said earlier. I love some slow burn movies, and there's slow burn movies that I like for that aspect, but they don't they kind of fizzle out at the end. This movie is like fireworks at the end. Like everything comes together. Exactly, and just the whole questioning what's real, what's not. Like you sit there the whole time, and you're like. Is her mom even real? Like, what is she doing? <laughs> yes, why, why is she crying while she's just painting terrible portraits? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, man. So, we, we talked about a lot of the themes of this movie, and I'm sure there's some others um, uh, that we're going to have to get to. I I did want to ask, since I picked out a few scenes, were there any scenes that stood out to you, LaShawn, that you wanted to, to discuss? Anything in particular that you really liked or, or anything like that? Hmm. I can't. I think you've touched on all of them, oh, okay. honestly. They were all really good scenes. Um, some for the cinematography, and some for just the deeper theme that it was trying to convey. So I think you got them all, honestly. Okay. Checking my little notes here, and yeah. One one that I wanted to mention that I really enjoy. Another probably a, a body horror scene is when Nina goes back to the hospital to give back the items she stole from Lydia Dietz. And and Winona Ryder's like, you stole these things from me? And she's like, I just wanted to be perfect. Oh. And she just starts stabbing herself in the cheeks. like, And she's like, I'm not perfect. What are you doing here? I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I know how it feels now. She's trying to replace me. What do I do? I was just trying to be perfect like you. Perfect. I'm not perfect. I'm nothing. Nothing! 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 scene in terms of the horror of it but when nina natalie portman runs away to the elevator we get the shot when she enters the elevator she has the nail file that was stabbing her so is the implication or maybe not an implication i think it's up to the audience was natalie portman the one stabbing beth because it can kind of go both ways natalie portman might have had a breakdown and like stabbed her but at the same time Lydia Dietz might have started stabbing herself, and Natalie Portman, like, grabbed the nail file away from her and ran with it. Oh, man, that's crazy. And then also with those two characters, it could be, one, like, one is a past version. Yes. Like, she's seeing herself in the future. How do I explain that? What, yeah, what you know she's what I mean. going to become. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly what she's going to become. There you go. It's 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 very interesting. Winona Ryder's great. I I think she has like crazy billing. I think she's something like fourth or fifth build in this movie, and she's only in it for like five minutes, so it's crazy. Um, <laughs> but she's really good in it. I mean, I I love I love Winona Ryder in general. Um, I think in everything except 
Stranger Things, where she's just screaming and crying for the whole time. Um, but like oh, sure. you know, Be- Beetlejuice is one of the greatest movies. I love that movie. Winona Ryder and like Heather's and and all that stuff is fantastic. She's in so little of this movie, but I think like you said, she is the the ghost of Christmas future in some sense. She's what <laughs> Nina would become if she stayed in this industry. If she didn't die at the end. And I, I guess that's another question because that's also open to interpretation. Do we think Nina dies at the end? Because of course she's bleeding out. And they call for the ambulance, but then she just kind of fades into white light, and the movie ends. I what I'm thinking is that she did. I know it's a movie, but what I think happened is that she really did have this altercation with uh, Lily okay. in the dressing room. I think that really happened, um, and mm. I think she really did hide the body and everything, and in the process did get stabbed, and so. She's going to end up, you know, coming back to snapping back into things. They're going to find the body and she's going to be in the same hospital where she found. Um, God, what's that's what's the lady's name? Uh, the one Lydia, that was Lydia Dietz. <laughs> yeah. Winona Ryder. She's going to be in the hospital, like still paying for the same mistakes that she stole or whatever from somebody else like way long ago. Oh. I, I like that interpretation because that that makes a little more sense. The thing that after Nina has her, like, great performance as the Black Swan and and she thinks she's killed herself slash Lily, Mila Kunis' character, Mila Kunis knocks on the door and she's like, wow, you were great. I know things got really messed up between us, but you blew me away. And that would make perfect sense because if they did have that altercation where, like, Nina slammed her into the mirror... It would be like, well, well, yeah, things didn't just get weird. They got tense, you know? It's <laughs> like, so, oh, that's a that's a pretty neat interpretation for sure. Yeah, but no, overall, I mean, I think all the scenes were great. It was, it was brilliant. Um, once you, if you're someone that can definitely tolerate the slow burners up for a little bit, you know, let the story build, it'll take you places you couldn't even imagine. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is I, – I would put this movie um, up there with, you know, uh, maybe not a slow burn – but, um, of course, like I've already said, I love slow burn movies, but I think this this movie really does something that very few movies I've seen do is that it's all the setup is all worth it just to make tiny details the most important thing you've ever seen. And the example I use a lot on cinematities is um good old inception, which I think we've also seen together. If, yeah, because yep, I, sure I love that. that movie. I think I've seen that movie like fifty times. Um, but but when I've gotten more in this into this like critical mindset because of cinematities, because of Zach, you know, I really now see Inception as you need ninety minutes of exposition and story setup to make two seconds of a van falling in slow motion mean something. And this movie does that too. You need all of that character building of Nina and her family and her mother and her her interactions to make it so that every time she looks in a mirror, you care about what she's feeling and what facial expressions she has. It's it's a it's an amazing feat that a lot of movies don't do, and when they do, they're fantastic. Yeah, you hit it on the head though when you said that you feel what she feels. Like every time she does look in that mirror, I I literally was like, man, like, she feels sadness. Oh, she feels hurt. She feels defeated. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I felt it. Yeah, the way that this movie makes you empathize with her is is beautiful because you might not, you know. It's like if you start watching – if you only watch the first 20 to 30 minutes of this movie, you're going to be like, okay, it's about a dance company, ballerinas, who gives a fuck? But it's like, no, 
It's it's about everything but that. That is the setting. It's literally about the characters looking at themselves in mirrors and whether or not those mirrors are reflecting exactly what they are or feeling. It's it's great. Oh yeah, you live a little, but don't live too much or else you die. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so so I think there were um I know there's one scene I wanted to bring up uh because it's just so so weird and kind of funny to me. <laughs> When Nina's on, like, the subway back home one night, there's an old dude sexually oh. harassing her. <laughs> yeah, and he starts, oh, yeah. he starts like, doing kissy faces at her. And then he continues to, while he's doing the kissy faces, he's just, like, using his mouth to imitate female masturbation noises and also acting out. Flicking the bean, and it's just like, what the fuck am I seeing? <laughs> well, I love how she just goes, ah, oh, sick. Or whatever, and yeah. then just turns. Yeah, like, she just she's looks just away. like, yeah. I, I will say that's oh. the best depiction of a New York City subway. If anything weird is going on, you look away. <laughs> that is that is legitimately what happens all the time on New York City subways. <laughs> oh god, it's horrible. Oh, but yeah, that that scene threw me for a loop both times I watched it because I'm just like, what the? F-? I'm like. I'm like, I get that she's being sexualized, but I didn't need this scene in the movie to make me think that more. Maybe it was just to point out how awkward she is, but also, like, I think that's awkward for everyone, no matter what level of, like, sexuality you have or uh, sexual experience you have. Like, I I know me, I'd be like, yo, dude, what are you doing? Like, get away from here. That's what I was about to say. Or just start doing something back to him. I'd be like, That's what I was about to say. If I was in in Natalie Portman's shoes and some dude started, like, mimicking female masturbation to me, I'd be like, what the fuck? (laughs) I would have the same response. I'd be like, dude. I'd be like, you well, okay, that man? part was pretty much, or the the subway, whatever, was pretty much empty. She could have literally moved anywhere else. Yes. She's just like, I'm just gonna turn. <laughs> oh yeah, that that scene was crazy. The other scene that made me like, I don't know why. This was something I'm really unsure why. But both times now I've watched this, I was la- I was laughing uncontrollably when Natalie Portman takes all of her stuffed animals and shoves them down the incinerator. Like, I get that that's her not being a little girl anymore. She's becoming the black swan. But the way that she does it is fantastic. She just has, like, as many stuffed animals as she can carry, and she's jamming them into this tight space. And for some reason, it just made me laugh uncontrollably. Like, it's it's the stupidest most inefficient way to dispose of stuffed animals because there's there's like shit tons of them falling on the floor she gets like 30 percent of them in the incinerator i think that's the whole thing like it's just got to be goofy it's a kid throwing a tantrum it's just it's just (laughs) wild like there's no method to it like nothing that she's done in the whole movie made any sense other than her dancing like that's all she had was her dancing yeah you bring up a good point like it is a kid doing it and and I think that's a, a big thing about this movie is that Natalie Portman plays it like a child, you know? Like, you, you see any other Natalie Portman movie, um, you know, we talked about Vox Lux on here. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, LaShawn, but it's very much about, like, the music industry and how people get, you know, uh, this woman, Natalie Portman, gets chewed up by the music industry. She has, like, a heavy, deep Boston accent. There's a There's a great line that we love to quote in that movie where she's, like, yelling at her sister because her sister, like, didn't take care of her daughter. Like, Natalie Portman's daughter, like, she finds out that the daughter had sex or is having sex, 
and Natalie Portman's furious about this, and the sister was supposed to take care of her. And Natalie Portman has the great line where she says to her sister, are you retarded or something? Because every now and then you get, this, you get this look in your eye where it glazes over like the world is just happening to you. Are you retarded? You're retarded? No. Because sometimes your jaw slacks in a certain way where you look like life's just happening to you. Look like a retard. And it's, it's like really adult and really direct. And, you know, even in like Annihilation, where Natalie Portman plays a scientist who's like trying to figure out things. She's very adult. I would say, hell, even in, like, what she's known for Thor and Thor 2, like, she's, she has a, a deeper affection. She, she's, a, she's a character that knows who she is. This movie is the complete yep. fucking opposite. Her voice is little girl voice 100% of the time. That scene, the first scene when she bites Vincent Cassell, she's like, uh, uh I, I, I came to ask you for the part, and uh, I don't know. And she's, like, twiddling her fingers, and it's like, this is, this is childlike. Like, this is... You have no control. So. Well, I just wanted to tell you that I practiced Dakota last night and I finished. I thought you should know. Okay, Nina, listen. Honestly, I don't care about your technique. You should know that by now. Yeah, but yesterday. No, anyway. I've already chosen Veronica, so. Sorry. Okay, thank you. That's it? You're not gonna try and change my mind? You must have thought it was possible. Otherwise, what are you doing here all dolled up? I came to ask for the part. Well... The truth is, when I look at you, all I see is the white swan. Yes, you're beautiful, fearful, fragile, ideal casting. But the black swan, it's a hard fucking job to dance both. I can dance the black swan too. Really? In four years, every time you dance, I see you obsessed getting each and every move perfectly right, but I never see you lose yourself. Ever. All that discipline for what? Just want to be perfect. You what? Want to be perfect. <laughs> Perfection is not just about control. It's also about letting go. Surprise yourself so you can surprise the audience. Transcendence. And very few have it in them. I think I do have it in Ah! You bit me? I can't, I can't believe you, you bit me. I'm sorry. But that fucking hurt. And she plays it fantastically in this movie to make us as the audience be like, wow, she is, she is literally the white swan. She is the virginal, pure person that has to make this transformation. Yep. Are you a virgin? No. <laughs> so, so you, so you've made love before. I, what? What? Sex. <laughs> sex. Go home and touch yourself. And she's like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Oh, it's great. Oh, I actually, <laughs> I actually did read. I was reading some things about what Natalie Portman thinks about this movie. Um, not that she feels bad about it, because you know it's something that got made a lot of money, got a lot of critical acclaim. Um, but apparently, Natalie Portman said that to get her voice and affect for this movie, she had to basically undo years of speech therapy. Like apparently, Natalie Portman always was like a little girl. And she went through tons mm-hmm. of years of training to be that more commanding voice presence. And I think it started with her role in um, The Phantom Menace, Star Wars Episode One, when she's Princess Amidala. She needed to be more commanding. And then this movie, she had to undo that. And that is what she's not happy about. Like, she doesn't care about any of the sex stuff, any of the weird stuff in this movie. She's like, this sent my voice training back 10 years. And I'm like, I don't like, I respect that Natalie Portman because she is convincing as a little girl with no control in this movie. Oh man, I, yeah, I don't even have anything to add to that. That's perfect. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Natalie, Natalie Portman is she's another one. Not like Mila Kunis, who I don't really like. Natalie Portman, I've always had kind of an eh feeling about, but with the last few movies we've done with her, this included, you know, like I said, a Vox Lux Annihilation. <laughs> Um, now Black Swan, she's, she's fucking fantastic. Like Natalie Portman is one of the finest actresses we have today, I would say. (laughs) I can respect that. Yeah. All right. So I'm, I'm looking through my notes. I'm trying to see if there's anything else that I had. I think the last thing I wanted to bring up is a, uh, a, a scene from the movie that is a, a little, a little forward, but it actually has a great story to it. Do you remember the scene where um, Natalie Portman and the guy who plays the prince, they're practicing her black swan portion, and Vincent Cassell it just keeps wanting to go more and more, and, and she's like, he's like, Natalie Portman, you're too rigid, you're too, you're too controlled. And when they break for a certain, like, rest or something, um, Vincent Cassell says to the guy who plays the prince, would you fuck her? Would you fuck that girl? Yeah. <laughs> and, and and the guy has no response and Vincent Cassell goes, of course you wouldn't. No one would. David, can I ask you a question? Honestly, would you fuck that girl? No. No one would. So, the yeah. guy the guy that plays the prince and is asked, would you fuck that girl in reference to Natalie Portman, his name is Benjamin Milpier. He's, he has, like, no lines in the movie. He's just that other dancer. This movie, on set of filming this movie, is the first time Benjamin Milpier and Natalie Portman met, and they got married in 2012, and they've been married since. <laughs> so literally... That's cute. The character get, that gets asked, would you fuck that girl and has no response, is now presumably constantly fucking that girl. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just love that oh, fact man. that this this movie and that scene was the like instigation for them to be married and they are still married to this day for like eight years plus that's crazy good, oh good yeah. find yeah yeah oh yeah, absolutely yeah good old uh i don't know uh, ben- benjamin milpier has been nothing else worthy of noting but um him and natalie portman have been married since 2012 and they met on the set of this film and uh, I just I just can't imagine that marital response if they ever like have to talk about Black Swan where it's like, uh, Natalie Portman, uh, your your husband said he would not fuck you in this movie. Does that does that have any issue with you nowadays? 
Yeah, oh. I checked my notes too. And the only thing I randomly have is I wrote down to the moon and back, LOL. To the and moon? I can't remember what that was in reference to. Like, I can't remember if it was. I'm going to have to find out what that yeah, was. I, like, that might be about. I, I'm, I'm, I don't remember exactly either, but that might have been something when. Vincent Cassell was introducing Natalie Portman at the gala, and he's talking about Beth, Lydia Dietz leaving, and he's like, my little princess, I love you to the moon and back, we're sorry to see you go. Is that that scene? So, oh, they might have said, I don't know, I thought it was, I don't know. I don't know, I'm going to have to do some research on this one again and figure out what I was talking about. Oh, sure, but sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that that's good. I This, oh, is a, this gives me something to do in post-editing. If there's any, anything we're ever confused about, I do little corrections, and uh, I'll have to look for that one for sure. Hey, kids. The line to the moon and back actually comes from when Natalie Portman returns home after clubbing with Mila Kunis, and her mother asks her where she's been. And she says, to the moon and back. you have any idea what time it is? Mm-hmm. Uh, late. Where have you been? To the moon... But yeah, I'm, I'm looking through mine. I think we had everything in this movie. Um, so if there's if there's no further uh, things to say about this, I think the one thing I want to reiterate is uh, do not cut your fingernails with scissors. Stop it. Fingernail clippers exist for a reason. <laughs> that is, uh, clipping your fingernails with scissors is just the most disgusting thing. Please don't do it. And hey, oh, even further, LaShawn knows I'm a, I'm an avid fingernail biter. And scissors skeeve me. Don't use yeah. scissors. Bite your fingernails <laughs> or clip them like a normal person. Um, oh, God. Oh, 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 I'm even gagging thinking about it. So, without any further ado, <laughs> we are now brought to our section of the podcast where we discuss our real questions. And this is the first for LaShawn. We always start with our cinemodities and late night. So, I'm going to throw it over to you to start with. If you disagree with me, the no feelings, answer as you feel truthfully. What do you think about Black Swan as a cinemodities or a late night movie? And or a late night movie. Hmm. As, hmm. Just, just, not to not to put question. any pressure on you, so. but but this whatever you say will get recorded in a spreadsheet. <laughs> like like we keep track of every guest and every answer, period. <laughs> no pressure. So, so how about we start with cinemodities? Do you think it's a cinematic oddity, yes or no? We'll start with that one. I would say that in this day and age, it is because it's deeper than most people care to watch. Okay. okay. And uh, for that, I would say that it is. It's, it's not a movie that you want to put on and say, oh, my God, friends, you guys should all watch this because half your friends will literally be like, this is boring. What's, where's the sex scene? You know, this is stupid. But then the other half will probably be like, hey, this is really deep. I get it. Like, am I the black swan or am I a white swan? Mm. And for that, I'd say it's a, definitely one of those cinemodities. So I think, and for late night? Yeah, I think you started to get at that. Late night is our recommendation. You know, would you show this to someone late at night? The way that I like to say this is, um, you know, maybe maybe I'll, I'll switch over here for my – I have to answer cinemodities still. But I definitely think this is a late night movie because one of my criteria for a late night movie – is I can throw it on and get good, insightful commentary and conversation from who I'm showing it to. And I think this this discussion is exactly my evidence for that because we've had a, a grand, you know, deep discussion about what this movie means. So I'm going to go yes to late night. What do you think, though? 
So for late night, I would have to say no on this mm. one. And it's because this is one of those – like for me, late night is, you know, probably a little bit of drinking and maybe date night. And so it would be pretty chill and relaxed where you may not necessarily – you know, yes. focus on the movie. And this is a movie I feel that you have to focus on because if you don't, you're going to end up thinking it's a horror movie. And this is more of a daytime sitting on the couch. You've done everything. You're just hanging out on the couch with your attention span still, and it's not yes. getting late and you're not oh. getting sleepy. Okay. Okay. That, that's a really good point. So, so I'm saying yes to late night. LaShawn's saying no. He said yes to Cinemodities. I'm actually going to go no to Cinemodities. Because while I love this movie, I, I really enjoy it. And after this discussion, I think I appreciate it a lot more. Um, because we've do do uh, dived into a lot of great concepts that I didn't think of. This, to me, is... Uh, I, it's, it's kind of bearing on a cookie-cutter psychological thriller. When I think of a psychological thriller, this hits the beats that it needs to hit, and there's nothing in it that makes me think of it as new. Sure, when I watched it for these first few times, I enjoyed it, but at the same time, other psychological thrillers made me kind of feel the same way. It's well done, absolutely, but not in a refreshing way that would make me think it's a cinemodity. So, LaShawn, you have the grand, grand distinction of being, I'm pretty sure, the first guest on this podcast where we are split. We are in disagreeance for both distinctions, Cinemodities and Late Night. Every <laughs> Zach and I are split basically every week. It's just the, the theme of this podcast. Every time we discuss something, we're always disagreeing. But every time I've had my guest <laughs> folks on, uh, we've always been in agreeance. And now we have someone who are split, which I greatly appreciate. So... With our distinctions being out of the way, we get to the snacks of the restaurant. So this is where I'm once again dropping things on LaShawn. The snacks that we pitch in this discussion will be menu items or events in our restaurant. That's how we do it. Our whole menu, if you get the menu at a restaurant... It's just one section, like it's not appetizers, desserts, entrees. It's just one big section called snacks. And everything's just lumped together. So um, I, I think with what I told you earlier, you have some idea of what we're going for in the restaurant, especially the fact that, uh, if you recall, Zach is working on eggs mixed with paint. So, so feel free to branch out into the grand ideas that might not always include food. But with this idea, because I did tell LaShawn he needed to do snacks beforehand, um, I only have a few. I don't have a lot for this movie. I definitely fell into the trap of watching this movie more than thinking about snacks, which I do a lot when I love a movie. Um, but I want to throw it over to LaShawn first, and maybe we can trade off snacks from this movie, restaurant editions, now that you know it. What was your thought? Maybe throw one out. We'll trade off for it. Um, the first idea I came up with was it's, you know, I figure you guys are a pretty fancy establishment. So, you know some sort of dessert for your five course meal is that mm. kind of the standard now or is it three courses three or five i don't um, know some most, amount of, of most of the <laughs> meals i would say like a good 60 55 to 60 percent of the meals you can order at a restaurant will kill you or incapacitate you so you cannot finish the courses uh so oh, okay. so so if you just want to pitch a dessert that's fine by us as well <laughs> okay this is kind of like a midnight munchie kind of uh, recommendation. 
So you basically would have a white chocolate cake, and then you would have white chocolate frosting, and then black licorice just on there. Okay. And I can't say it's going to taste good, but it's very black swan. Oh, so you're going for the juxtaposition between the white and the black type of thing. All day. Okay. Oh, that that's a, see, that's a good one because that makes me think of something that I thought of. Um, my my thought for the cake aspect, which of course comes from the cake from this movie, I think we're drawing on the same thing. Um, I would like to serve as a dessert to our customers a piece of vanilla cake with strawberry filling because that's the cake in this movie. If we want to throw some black licorice or whatever you know you had on there, that's fine. But the piece of cake is way way too big. And if the customer either tells us it's too big or they don't want it because it's too big, we throw <laughs> the entire go. cake that we made it from away in front of the customer. And we go, you didn't like it. Yes. No one's going to like it. And we dump it in the trash in front of them. Or maybe – so I think something that, LaShawn, you should know, um, we on this podcast and this restaurant, we like to belittle our listeners and customers – so our customers are always wrong. Our listeners are always stupid. Uh, that is a, a tenet of the cinema of these podcasts and restaurant. So I like that. Let's take your <laughs> idea. Let's take this black swan cake. We'll serve them a piece that's way too big. And if they don't finish it all or if they don't like it because it's too big, we show them the consequences of their actions. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. That's like the perfect way to end their experience for the night. <laughs> yes. So, so one of the snacks that I had actually comes directly from this movie. It's in an early scene. Um, the breakfast that Nina has to eat, it is served by her mother. Half a grapefruit and a soft-boiled egg. One <laughs> soft-boiled egg. The only thing I want to add, because of my knowledge of dancers, which this movie doesn't get into too much, if you order the Black Swan uh, breakfast, let's call it that, Black Swan breakfast, the Black Swan fist, maybe... Uh, you get half a grapefruit, a soft-boiled egg, and a cigarette. <laughs> <laughs> that, and that, that's one of the more tame meals at our restaurant. <laughs> Man, that's under 100 calories. That's a light, light, light meal. Yeah, and if you smoke the cigarette first, it'll curb your hunger. You can even skip the grapefruit and the soft-boiled egg. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, okay, did you have any other snacks for the, for the, the movie or the restaurant? Yeah, you guys better be careful because Donald Trump might have to buy that establishment. <laughs> as far as we know, he um he doesn't know about it. It's the Oh god, what's the what's the saying is it's it's not who you beat, it's who you who leaves you alone after they've won. You know that saying where it's like it's like you shouldn't you shouldn't come you shouldn't be the winner of a war, you should be the people that are forgotten about after the war is over. Like, just to live under your, on, on your own pretenses. And that's how we feel. Like, the Cinemonies restaurant does not get into politics because whoever wins, we want to be left alone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it is in New York, though, so Donald Trump might come a-knockin', you know, as he expands. <laughs> but, yes, did, did you have anything else, any other snacks that you thought of? No. No, okay. That's no. all I had. Fair, fair. Of course, <laughs> this is your this is your first experience with the Cinematis restaurant. I think uh as uh maybe uh, if we get you on in future episodes, you'll have a better idea of, you know, the the monstrosity that is this restaurant. The only other one that I had was um 
as I mentioned to LaShawn earlier, and as our audience knows, uh, since the Cinemodities restaurant is an infinite void and it's captured people, like there are literally a tons, a ton of people that cannot find the exit to our restaurant, so they just kind of live in the restaurant, which is great recurring business for us. I was thinking that we would gather them up, if we can, and maybe start a Cinemodities restaurant dance company. And maybe we put on, like, a, a Black Swan performance. We do have multiple stages, I should say, where we have some animatronics doing dances and songs and stuff like that. Maybe we gather some people up and we start training them to dance. Who knows? I think that could be good fun, right? Yeah, I think so. It's almost as much fun as sitting on a toilet not realizing it's a bidet. <laughs> <laughs> that That is a great analogy, for sure. You go into a restaurant, you're stuck there for months, and then we make you dance. It's the same thing as getting your ass water blasted when you don't expect it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with the whole COVID situation. Oh, you know? that's, that's awesome. Oh, yeah, Everyone's that, that, going to the that, that's why we love the COVID situation, because the people who are stuck in our restaurant... Their $1,200 stimulus checks have gone right back into the restaurant. It's fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That's rough. (laughs) with that being said, uh, I want to extend an invitation. LaShawn, if you are ever in Times Square, New York, near the Cinematis restaurant, uh, you will be granted access to the VIP room where you are protected from dying in the restaurant. You don't don't get to pay less or anything like that. You're just protected from dying. Uh, That's the VIP room. But... Anybody who guest stars on this podcast, we extend an invitation to the VIP room. Uh, just between you and me, don't come to the restaurant. <laughs> uh, other than that, uh, LaShawn, thank you so much for being here. This was a great conversation. Um, this, I, I think you've, you've touched on some great analytical ideas, which is exactly what I wanted from this film. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. And with that, I will turn it over to you with any closing remarks you have, as well as, once again, please feel free to pitch anywhere that our audience can find you, listen to you, comment on you, things like that. Go for it. Oh, man. See, the good thing about podcasts is people don't see your face unless you record live. So (laughs) if they want to see my ugly mug, they can find me on uh, YouTube or Instagram under LJ's Garage. But now I see how you feel. Like, talking about movies and stuff, I I forgot how in-depth you can really go with this stuff. And it was a lot of fun to be able to just, like, pick apart a movie. And, you know, you don't see that a lot nowadays. And I'm I'm just glad to be able to, like, experience a good movie that was well-written, that was in-depth, structured, and, like, completely thought about. Whereas, you know, I'm used to just looking at cars. And I obviously appreciate the ones that some designer or engineer put a lot of thought into and so it's the same thing. We have a very similar interest, but different. Uh, what's what's different things that we focus on? Exactly. Subjects is that the word? There you no, go. I I love so, that. Th- I'm I'm glad you feel that way. I hope that uh, we can have you on in the future. Um, I know as we go through June, this is only the second episode of of Chewed Up and Spit Out. We have a great cast of characters uh, filling up other episodes. Um, but when we go further, I uh, as a little peek behind the curtain for our audience and for Lashawn. I have been looking into and really wanting to do the 11 Minutes in Heaven series where we discuss TV shows that run 11 minutes long. And you better believe if I ever get the chance to do that series, Adventure Time will be in there and LaShawn will be back to talk about the 
the gloriousness that is Adventure Time. But no, I, I really appreciate <laughs> what you're saying. I'm so glad that I got to have you on here, LaShawn, because you know you have an analytical mind that I, I think we both um, we were attracted to each other back in the day when we first became fast friends, that we were not just idiots looking to get drunk in college. We could actually talk about <laughs> nonsense and get drunk at the same time. So, <laughs> so I will put LJ's Garage in the show notes. I recommend everybody check it out. It is something completely different from Cinemodities, but fantastic to watch. Not even if you're interested in certain cars, but just the idea of learning about something new. That is a great YouTube channel to do so. So once again, thank you, LaShawn, for being here. And I hope we get to hear you in the future. Yeah. Thanks again, Rob. You guys all have a good night and take it easy whenever you're listening. Have a good morning, good day, good Tuesday, whatever it is. Perfect. And with that being said, the last thing we need to discuss is, well, how are we going to end this episode? Uh, Every time that uh, Rob is in control of these things, he pretty much just chooses it. But I think LaShawn will agree. Uh, We always play something in reverse. The score of this movie is something, of Black Swan, is something we didn't talk a lot about because it is very much, you know, the actual Black Swan music. Um, But we do get some original score, and I would like to take the music that plays during the Lezzy sex scene and play that in reverse, because that's some great, deep, orchestral, (laughs) beautiful nonsense, and since it's the first time we've had girl-on-girl action on Cinemodities, why not let us use it to play ourselves out? What do you think, LaShawn? You in agreeance? I like the sound of this. <laughs> All right. Until next time, everybody, give us a rate, review, and subscribe. Yell at us at cinemodities at gmail.com or yell at Zach, even though he's not here, at cinemodities on Twitter. And please, if you like, love, hate, whatever, LaShawn's appearance, contact him through LJ's Garage or our email, and we will keep it going from there. Once again, thank you, LaShawn. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope everybody is ready for next week as we go further into women in the industry. And I do want to give a little sneak peek. I'm pretty sure, I'm trying my best, next week we are going to talk about Boobies the Movie, a.k.a. Showgirls by Paul Verhoeven. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to actually have two women on the podcast to talk about boobies. Isn't that exciting? Oh, man, that sounds <laughs> like a good does time. not know what to say at this point. He's like, boobies the movie, what? <laughs> <laughs>